out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest this week. It is the turn of the singer, composer, producer and also novelist. It is the one and only Ian Donaldson, who was originally in various kind of punk bands in Scotland. One with Alan McGee, in fact, but um, then went on to form H2O and uh, was, I believe, on the label of RCA and released various singles called Hollywood Dream and also made the top 20 with I Dream to Sleep and did an amazing album and has since then gone on to work with various other people from Big Country, Simple Minds, etc, etc. But the exciting news is that he has a record... His uh, music career has reawakened and he's got a new single out which has just come out titled All I Have Is Forever. Do check it out. This guy has got the best vocal ever. Such a voice and production as well. So um, All I Have Forever, do do listen. You will enjoy it, I guarantee. Anyway, this is the interview with Ian. And after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Ian, it's over to you. Take it away. When I was growing up, I was brought up in tenement land in, in Glasgow. So, you know, everybody had different tastes up up the close that I lived in. So you could hear the Beatles or you could hear uh, even country music happening in my, in my close. So you could hear Tamla Motown. So I, I had all that growing up. Um, and I was an avid Top of the Pops watcher like we all were because it was mm. really the only programme to watch. Um, but my, for me, it was David Bowie was singing Starman. I mean, right. that was the moment of it. Yeah, I remember sitting on the in the living room watching it, twenty five past seven, as you remember, on a, a Thursday night, and I was watching. And when David Bowie put his arm round uh, Mike Ronson, and he said, "I had to phone someone, so I picked on you," and had the bangles round, and I just thought, I turned around to my mum and I said, "That's what I want to be when I leave school, an alien." That's how much I knew. It was fab. <laughs> and she thought, great, that's 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 all going to um that's not going to give us any sleepless nights. Um so there you go. So <laughs> did you have a um did you have a musical household at all? Were your parents at all? No. No. No, no, no not at all. Yes. Well my brother, it was funny, my brother liked my younger brother liked the sweet, who did have amazing B sides. So do you remember? Did you buy any of the early Sweet singles? No, there was always like I'm I'm just the greatest hit sort of fan. <laughs> okay, well, Chin and Chapman wrote all the A sides like Wigwam Bam and all that kind of stuff, but they they were allowed to record their own and write their own songs for the B sides. Right, and some of the songs were like early heavy metal. Just sound brilliant. So I maybe check them out. Um, my older brother he liked um, Roxy music, and I liked David Bowie. So it was always a Kind of as soon as my, my dad used to work nights, as soon as he left the door at nine o'clock, we would all run through and try to grab the radiogram before right. it, either the other two did to play our records. Yeah, that's quite that's quite um yeah, your your brother was very hip and groovy, wasn't he, with his Roxy music obsession. So what was your first ever gig that you went to? The sweet, nineteen seventy-four at the Apollo in Glasgow. Right. Blimey. Yeah. That's, that's quite nice, isn't it, really? And um, did you get dragged there by your older brother? I was my younger brother. I had to go because he was he was 12, so he couldn't go himself. So my mum bought me a ticket as well, and uh, I took him. Oh, I did. So, I had a great night. 
your parents were so groovy. So were you kind of at that stage, were you kind of getting very excited with other bands? Because obviously Top of the Pops was our go-to thing. Basically, it was our only thing really, wasn't it? So people like, you know, when you saw Alex Harvey on Top of the Pops, did things like that make you think, hmm, that's quite exciting as well? I think that being, you know, sons and daughters of glam did open your mind anyway, because, you know, you had all these amazing songs with all these amazing artists on 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 top of the pops who all look different from each other. You had Mark Bolin, you had I always remember seeing uh Roxy Music doing pajama uh, pajama no Virginia Plain. Yes. And he had he was he looked like something from the planet, you know, Planet B. He had the green eyes shadow and everything. So already I think our our, our DNA was beginning to change and be altered by this all these otherworldly sounds and otherworldly people. So I think that a lot of people at that time became thinkers. You know, people think that glam rock was somehow dumbed down nonsense kind of music, but I don't think it was at all. I think the stories, I mean, what was a Virginia playing? What was a pajama-rama, you know? Um, <laughs> yes. All the young dudes, all that stuff. You know, I think that it, it set us up for punk, I think, as well, because punk was another explosion, and we were all kind of about that age where it was like we had something to say, but didn't really know how to say it. It was yeah. all, I can, see the, I can see the pattern now. So when did you discover your singing voice, which has kind of been so... Um, well, I think I, I, bought, uh, I bought Ziggy Stardust and, and I never had it off when it was my turn to play it on the radiogram. I never had it off and I just sang along, sang along. And uh, the first school band was uh, when I was 14. We were called Legend and we had draped suits like teddy boys. Nice. And we played kind of, and we played kind of souped up, you know, rhythm and blues. Um, and I never stopped to think I could sing or I couldn't sing. I just knew I wanted to do it. So people were going to get it whether they wanted it or not, whether it was good or bad. So it was a bit like that. Um, and, what was it, what, and what was it like, like growing up in Glasgow at that time, that decade? Was it? Um, yes, I have no idea. Pretty grim. It was pretty much black and white. Um, and I think when when Top of the Pops was on, it was a little bit of Technicolor. Yeah. <laughs> on a Thursday night. You know, that, that's really all it was, you know. Because I was watching a documentary before Christmas. It was Scottish football managers, you know, and um, Bill Shankly was there. And he said, you had two choices. You either worked down the pit or you played football. I mean, you know, Bill was good on his kind of sound bites, wasn't he? Did you have a sort of similar feeling that there wasn't that many opportunities kind of growing up at that stage, you know, you're thinking, blimey, we need plan C here, because frankly, the, the, the first two plans are not good. Well, you know, I did play football. I played football for Hibs Boys Club and I played the football for Harmony Row, which was the, the team that um, Alex Ferguson played for in Govan as well. I was brought up in the same area as him. And then, but I liked art. So I ended up studying art. I, I left the football behind, uh, became a punk. Um, and then I studied art, and Edwin Collins and I were in the same year in the same class. Right. And that's how we, that's how we became friends. I remember him bringing in, there was a little um, record player called a Dan Set. It was like a bit, looked like a week in a handbag. And he brought that <laughs> in one day. He brought that in one day, as, you know, that, that seemed apt for, for Edwin. And uh, he brought that in, and, and he put on Denis Denis by, the, by Blondie. Yes. He just left it on repeat for seven hours. We just nobody thought to take it off. It was so good. It just continued, and um, that was when again something else was happening. Because although punk was great, 
Um, there were people like Television, Blondie, Susie and the Banshees, that, that were, were taking it further than three chords in an attitude. They were thinking, what else can I do with this? And I think yes. that's what I'm talking about with glam. I think glam affected us and it, and it, it kind of primed us for, for being able to think and do something else. And I kind of followed up. I, was, I loved punk. I've still got the records. Um, but I, I just knew there was more to life than that. But, you know, there's no master plan. I couldn't say, yeah, I sat down and the first two plans didn't work. I don't think maybe nowadays younger people maybe maybe can think that way. But because there's much more at their fingertips, they can plan things. They can look at Google. You can, you've got social media. But then I, I just... And that's when I met Alan, Alan McGee. Yes, well, I, I was just uh, thinking back, back on yeah. those days. The careers teacher was some sort of random person you saw for five minutes and they would, I must admit that was a cushy job, wasn't it, back in those days? But funny I enough, that, that was my, you know, when you said about uh, the Blondie single, Denis, that was my third ever single because I bought, you know, Space Oddity, Rocks, um, Rod Stewart's Sailing, which was great, and then Denis Denis, which had a B-side of something like Kung Fu Fight and then Contact in Red Square. And that, actually, B-sides were good in those days. Um, and yeah. that had a huge effect. And then I found out many years later, it was originally done in the early 60s by something like Randy and the Rondells or something. But um, an interesting B-bot number. So anyway. Well, I think, I think Denis Denis or Sunday Girl, one of those was actually done by a band in the 60s as well like the magic unicorns or something like that you know they weren't afraid to pick songs and kind of blondieize them no that's but, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Met you. it's so funny what you said about no sorry, sorry after you i was just going to say it's funny you, you mentioned about the careers officer i remember sitting outside the careers officer has a uh, office and it came my turn and, I, and I, as i was walking in he had his head down he had one of those kind of sweeney type haircuts with the sideboards in, a, in the corduroy jacket and a kind of tartan tie. And he shouted, name. And I said, Donaldson. And he said, before he even got to me, he said, what do you want to be when you leave school, Donaldson? I said, a pop star. And he went, next. And that was <laughs> it. That, that's all that happened. <laughs> wow. Well, the truth. He had a hard he had a hard day, didn't he, that chap? <laughs> Blimey. Yes. God, I would love hey, to. Tell me, about, tell me about you, David, though. Tell me, you, tell me about you, where were you brought up? Well, we were brought, I was brought up in the sort of rural East Anglian countryside and um, it was one of those very sort of working class kind of worlds, really, with, um, yeah, sort of, you know, parents, you know, sort of met and married when in the 50, yeah, mid to late 50s. They were really young at that age, you know, they would, mum was probably about 17 when she married and um, dad was about 24 and I was the third of three boys. There was a bit of a gap between the first two. Basically, they wanted a girl and they got me. Um, but I had two older brothers. I was a bit obsessed with my oldest brother who was really into football. He was a good football player, but he was also into um, prog rock. So I loved all his prog rock records. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest. And yeah, so, you know, you, you're just there in the countryside playing football with a few friends from the village and pottering around at school doing sort of GCS, no CSEs, and then sort of not really knowing what you want to do next. But um, so it was kind of interesting because there weren't that many facilities and there weren't that many options, you know, in life then, you know, you just kind of, you didn't know any different though. I mean, it was incredibly yeah. working class. My dad used to have to work kind of in like one job and then you got a sort of 
I say cash in hand job, I suppose you'd have called it. If you wanted to have a holiday, you know, to save some money or my mum had to get a job just before Christmas. If you wanted to get a few extra things, you know, so she'd had to do one of those horrible kind of, I don't think she ever, she might have done turkey plucking or sprite picking or something like that. You know, so it was one of those lives. Sounds, you know. very, familiar. Sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. So, you yeah. know, p- pictures of us as young kids, we're all sort of grubby with either in wellies or football boots, you know, just always kind of with mud all over ourselves, you know, you know, just getting into slight trouble. But luckily we grew up in a village that had a Second World War aerodrome on the side of it. And that was one of our playgrounds, which was incredibly dangerous. Oh. And, uh, but great fun, you know, because there were so many things still to look, because there was still quite, it had been quite left since the Second World War. It all got really knocked down in the 80s. But when we were kids growing, you know, playing in that, that environment was just fantastic fun, you know, so, um, oh, lovely. I <laughs> so like the, it. yeah, so that was me. Um, yes. And then, you know, the eighties, I was Mr. Indie kid really. So look, you met, you met Edwin. When did you, did you meet Alan Horn? This is the famous Alan Horn. Yes, I did on a few occasions. Yeah. Famous. He was just, he was a bit of an enigma, a bit like Edwin. I think it was enigmas. Whereas I think that's really what Postcard was about. It was all kind of a little bit unusual. You had Joseph Kay and a few others, and they were all kind of slightly neurotic, you know, um, socially challenged. You know, just a little bit. Just it was a little bit. I wasn't sure sometimes whether it was it was contrived awkwardness or not. I wasn't really sure, but it was all a little bit. It wasn't rock and roll. I know that much, and. Uh, it was interesting to watch because I wasn't part of that. I was more kind of, well, H2O really were on our own. We didn't really kind of, our our best friends were a band called Heavy Petting, which was a rock band from Glasgow. They went on to tour with um, oh, Finn Lizzie and oh, all sorts of people in America, um, yes. Bon Jovi. And they were our friends, basically. So um, it was so when- possible to have a... It was possible to have little bits of culture that, that that weren't related to each other. Postcard was one of those. You had the Center Simple Minds one, and you had like Big Country and the bands from the from the Fife area. It was all a little bit different, you know. We just kind of you know you saw each other in passing, but it didn't really cross pollinate in any way. You know, it was going different directions. Yes, and I suppose you had the skids who were huge, weren't they? But then, look, you yeah. mentioned the magic word, the magic name, Alan McGee. Tell us when did you first <laughs> meet Alan? The Alina? well. <laughs> well, I, I, well, he, he was a he was he was really a box of fireworks. Really, he was. Um, we used to keep them in our, we used to keep fireworks under our beds and bring them out every night, playing with them in front of the open fire. Literally, we you know it was like this big thing. We'd get some money, go to the little shop, get some fireworks, put them in the shoebox, and then get them out and go. Yeah, man, you love know. it. So, uh, Jesus. you know what? <laughs> It is, you know, it is kind of Darwinistic, isn't it? I mean, it's, I'm surprised we've, you know, we've, we've got this far because we survived all those all things. All our fingers, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, no, Alan, Alan was working the railways at the time. Um, and I just split up a band called Screw. We were a punk band, a four-piece punk band. And uh, I put an advert in a music store saying, you know, like-minded musicians for new forward-looking band you know, influences television, Roxy music, all that kind of stuff. And Alan answered and uh, we got together and he was a terrific bass player. He doesn't tell anybody that anymore. But, no, he so we wrote that a, so secret, not, doesn't he? Yeah, he did. Uh, and we, we wrote a set of songs. We found a drummer, we found a guitarist and 
uh, we played our very first gig, a CND rally. It'll right. be 44 years. 44 years this first of May. I've got a gig. I've got a gig in Glasgow just to just to kind of celebrate that. Um, and that was the start of it. But but it was always going to be short term because we were just we didn't know what the future was or what it was, but we wanted to do something. So Ali, um Andrew Ennis, who's now with Primo Scream, he joined the band, and Neil Clark, who was in uh who's the boy that did Perfect Skin? Oh yeah, Lloyd Cole. Lloyd Cole. So the five of us were together at one point and it was just, you know, it was a bit under your bed. Somebody threw in a match and it just kind of exploded and everybody went their own way. Um, I kept in contact with Alan now and again, but uh, it wasn't really until about this time last year that I met him properly. Um, And that's when he said, I've got an idea. I've been listening to your solo stuff and I really like it, but I've got an idea. And I said, okay, let's meet. So we met and had a cup of coffee. He doesn't drink. So we just had a cup of coffee and he said, I've got a friend in Berlin. He's from Dublin originally. His name's Craig Walker and he used to be in a band called Power of Dreams, which were a Dublin band, which were terrific. Um, and he said, I think that you two should write together. So he introduced us. We go in La House and Fire and then the, the single that's out at the moment is the first song that we finished. And that's, that's kind of... That's it. It's gone full circle now from being rockets, you know, 17, 18 years old, and then all these years later, back together again. It's kind of a bit of a, bit of a fairy tale, really. So did you say Clive Walker you've collaborated with? Uh, no, Craig Walker. Craig Walker. Is, is he based yeah. in Berlin? He is based in Berlin. He's, you'll know him. He's written with everybody. He's written for films, scores, you name it, he's done it. But the band he was in, Power of Dreams, was a terrific band. Yeah. It's worth checking out. I think I interviewed him recently. Christ. I must keep a note of all of these people. Yes, I, God, I suddenly thought, my God, that sounds familiar. Actually. Maybe. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but then you had other bands like the Pratts, didn't you, from, from Scotland, who were basically yeah, back to there, there, there was loads of bands. I mean, just after us, then you had this kind of blue-eyed soul thing that happened with Hipsway and Love and Money and the Big Dish and all sorts of bands as well. It's... Uh, it's I think Glasgow is very like Liverpool. It's a working class town with lots yeah. of singers. Really, I am. By the way, I am really envious because the great thing about the countryside is it's full of nature. But there was culturally, it's really barren. By the way, and um, so that's a downside. And even Norwich, you know, doesn't have a huge kind of musical legacy. And you know, though you can try and flaunt uh, the Farmers Boys, the Higson series drinking, it doesn't really rock. No. It doesn't rock. Doesn't really you know, whereas no. you just okay. you reeled out all those names, and I just think, really, I'm so pleased for you. Um, so there you go. Yeah, I know. It's kind of, I don't know what it is. You know, we've got the venues, you know, well, little venues, but we just never had that kind of, wow, look at that, Cherry Red Records put together a five CD box set of Norwich and Ipswich bands. You know, you, they would struggle to get an EP. Well, <clears throat> I don't know. Well, extra. XTC were they not from Norwich? No, no XTC. No, they're kind of. Where I they think from? they're more in the Midlands somewhere. But being one of those people who's a bit hopeless and they're you know embarrassing about geography, I have no idea. But they're definitely not from this area. So, the oh, Farmers right. Boys, who who was signed to EMI on the same day as Kajagugu. So there you go. Don't don't yeah. go to a dinner party with that anecdote. That won't that won't that won't go down well. So look, you <laughs> the band the, the band explodes, and then you're in this incredibly groovy little band. And I have to say, the cover reminds me of, is it the Lotus Eaters? That sort of cover with the, the guitarist on the front of the, because um, this is H2O, isn't it? Your next one. Yes. Yeah. 
And this, was. this is a slick machine, isn't it? We didn't know it was a slick machine. We didn't know what a new romantic was. We didn't know anything. Again, it's you, you're just even when we were making Dream to Sleep, you know the 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 type of technology that was that was available at the time. It was it was really kind of primitive. So you were making up sounds as you were going along, and you were just trying different things out. Luckily, the engineer on that uh, was Dave Bascom. But Dave Bascom went on to produce Deco and the Buddyman, songs from the big chair for. Uh, Tears for Fears, all sorts of people. We got got me was like the same age as us, and we got on really well. And he had loads of different ideas. You would come in the next morning, and at the studio, and he'd been up all night, you know, hammering something in the wall, or you know, ticking something, and, and he put all these kind of sounds together. And, and it was really the start of not only thinking about songs being different, but also sounds being different. He kind of yeah. turned us on to trying different things as well, which is quite early days, but. Um, H2 was good. H2 was good fun. We, we, you know, got, we got the we got the gold medal. We got top of the pops as well. So yeah, so for me that was that was mission accomplished. And uh, and sharp haircuts as well. So you you actually toured with Echo uh, didn't you? We did. We we did. We we did um, thirty dates with them. And oh my god, it was good fun. It I would was, imagine. I mean, let's face it. It was you know because it was that kind of thing. You know, seventy nine Thatcher gets in. You know, we've got. The Green Greenham Common. We've got, you know, obviously you were very politically minded by your CND gig there, I'm yeah. sure. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then you had the Falkland, the, the 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 sort of Falkland crisis, and yeah, the miners' strike and and everything else going on. So you know, let's face it, you know, anything is better than just being on the dole, sort of one, you know, sort of just claiming. I don't know, was it like sixteen pound a week or something? It was. Hey it wasn't much. And actually, you know, because a lot of the indie bands I've done, you know, they, they did have sort of job, the Job Seekers Allowance, Enterprise Allowance schemes, which gave them that one year of, I don't know, pretending to do something. But some, you know, managed to sort of crack the music business in a way for a few years at least. So, yes. So the album came out on RCA. So how come you were suddenly, you know, did you all relocate to London? No, no. We, we, we spent a lot of time in London, but... Where we still stayed in Glasgow most of uh, most of, about half the year. We would come down when we had to record because the recordings were done in London, um, and to do any press or TV work, most of it was there. Uh, Newcastle was a big a big player at the time as well because you had Razzmatazz and a few other shows that were happening there. The Tube, uh, but you really didn't have to be here all that be in London all the time. It wasn't yeah. necessary. And what's and what was your sort of memories of your sort of. 30 dates in 30 days with Kajagugu. Was was it was it kind of like almost like Beatle Mania or um the Bay City Rollers? Did you think, my God, we've got screaming fans? Well, what what the, 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 the Rollers fans were, were I think they were a bit more wild than the Kajagugu fans. I think they were they were quite they were more well behaved. But <laughs> when we when we started when we started the tour, the, the reason why the single charted because I would plug it every night and and just say to people, you know, the audience, go get your mum going, you know, go and buy the single on Saturday morning. And we saw it steadily going up the charts. And by the time we got to about uh with a week to go, we were 17 in the charts. And it was down to that and uh it was just people power, it really was. Um and it was I mean some people, you know, are quite disparaging about Kajagugu. You know, it's easy to criticise somebody else's success, and it's hard to get your own. That's the way I look at it. So, they had number one records. They did. They, they were terrific players. So I'll defend them to the last. Yeah, um, well, absolutely. It, it, 
it really helped. It really helped. And I know that um, I can't remember his surname, but Nick, the bass player, is quite a, quite the musician, isn't he? Yes, Nick Beggs. Yeah, he's so, a um, player. I would imagine the band are good. You know. Um, yes, my God, you must have sort of been. Yeah. So were you were you sort of tempted into that world of the Blitz Kids and sort of the, the wonderful world that was Spandau Ballet, Duran Duran? Did you start feeling like this was your your sort of a bit of a scene that you were sort of tapping into? We, again, you don't really know. It's, it's, it's only in hindsight that you can really see anything clearly, but we, we didn't really know there was a scene. The only thing I really know was, apparently I was a, a new romantic then, and now I'm an old romantic. That's about as def, as def, about as defined as it can be. We we tapped in a little bit. We we went to some of the parties, had a bit of fun, but I just... I, we were just our own people, you know? We really... We did things our own way. We did. We made our own records the way we wanted to. We didn't really get too sucked into. Uh, I just thought it was kind of pointless, to be honest, Dave. Now that now I'm actually looking at it from all these years past, it was, it was, there was an awful lot um, of front in those days. You know how you looked. Yeah. It's always been about the, It's always been about the songs. I mean, uh, that's what the thing that Alan McGee and I generally talk about is songs, great songs, and it's about trying to make great music. And even then I knew that that's, that you would love or die, stand or fall, be remembered or not by what you made. And uh, that's never really kind of left me, but it was fun, but I didn't really take it that seriously. No, because most bands, you know, and this is probably mostly indie bands, their their story is like, you know, they get together, they have 12 months, you know, the honeymoon period, and they get the single, John Peel plays it, John Peel session, first album, things going well traveling around the UK. I mean, your story is a little bit different, really, because you get onto that major and <laughs> top of the pops, which is like, wow, that's that's kind of another yeah. kind of a bit of a different league, really. But then, you know, the tricky second album or the tricky third album. But you don't you don't get to the second. Al- what happens after the success of that first album? Because because it, it feels like it's all lined up. Even the cover, looking at it 40 years later, it's still it's a good cover. You know, it's not you know, it's not like, oh, that's, you know, you know, you know what I mean, though. Sometimes you look at covers, you know, in retrospect, and you think, "Yeah, never mind." That I mean, wasn't a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but the cover's good. You know, it's a, it's a classic. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing embarrassing about it, and there's no, no there's no dodgy haircuts or moustaches, which is good. So yeah. You so what what, ha- what happens after that album? It's a it's a it's a difficult one to can explain in, in a few words. But basically, what happened was we. The guy that signed us to RCA, Sean Greenfield, uh, he had a kind of real vision for us. Um, and the the head of the company in Britain, RCA, was in tune with that. And, th- and that's why we got money to spend on different things. But then he was offered the job, the, the, the managing director was offered the job in United States. So he took that. And another guy came in, an RCA guy from Belgium, who just didn't like the band at all. So he stopped, he stopped, you know, allowing us to do things. He, he cut our budgets. He argued about everything we were doing. And it just the kind of soul left what we were trying to do. Our, our man, Sean Greenfield, was really frustrated as well. And we eventually said, look, there's no point in us being here. We went away. So they let us go. Um, and at that time, we'd already recorded enough songs for a second album. But... Uh, it just didn't happen. We went to another company called Legend Records, which was Woolworths' 
uh, first attempt at having a record label. Right. Um, um, so I put out, we put out another H2O song, a song called Blue Diamond. It got loads of radio play, didn't quite hit the top 40, and then they dropped us. And it was like, where do we go from here? It was one of those ones. It's just a kind of classic rock and roll story, you know? It is a rock but and no roll story. Regrets. No, no regrets. And um, I mean, to be honest, you, you sort of had a good a good one good slot, you know, sort of. Yeah. I know, well, I'm doing this, this show, I mean, God, you realise... I mean, it's a bit like, you know, trying to go and go to the moon, really being in a band. You know, sometimes the stars line up and everything's just there. Sometimes you just think, oh, that was so unlucky, you know. And some bands, you know, they, I don't know, they, they get signed up and then, you know, the next day they get a phone call and say, oh, by the per- way, the person who signed you is just dropped dead. So I'm afraid you're, um, you're on your own again. You know, the story of Twisted Sister is quite amazing. Um, they had 10 years before they got a record deal. And bizarrely, it was when they performed on the tube, so that somebody, you know, um, yes, eventually said, oh, "Okay, we'll sign you." But it was it was quite a story. I won't go into it, but it's a brilliant story. But did you just to say, did you play on the tube at all? No, we didn't. I, I, I was a guest on the tube, and I was supposed to be, uh, I was supposed to be backing vocalist for Frankie Goes to Hollywood. But uh, eventually, at the last at the last minute, they decided, no, we want girl singers instead. So it was going to be me, Paul Young. And Billy McKenzie um, from the Associates, but I think Candy Statton or something, I can't remember who it was, but they wanted Holly wanted girl singers instead. So that was that. Oh, that is so unlucky. That would have been just <laughs> quite a moment, wasn't it? I'm sure she was well dressed for the occasion. Um, well, <laughs> yes, good on. They were good times. Anyway, then, so look, you're in that wonderful position, 87. 87 and and sort of the band has folded what happens next with you i became a hermit for two or three years i'd been in band since i was about 12 or 13 and i was just kind of burnt out i just you know we'd lost i'd lost a lot of money personally our, our publishing company hadn't paid us for about three years and they went bust and our back catalog went to emi right there was no money there was no money so i just went home to glasgow and i just kind of I was a hermit for two or three years. Yes, it does and happen. Then, the, her- the hermit period is is quite horrendous, isn't it? Did you know? God, it's terrible. I mean, it's yeah. How do you cope trying to pull yourself out of that? Necessary. It was necessary. I, I, again, you know, you, you don't really know these things at the time, but it was it was necessary. And I've never drank. I'd never drank before, and I drank for about six months nonstop. And uh, and then I then I, I did stop completely and thought, what am I doing? So then I, I approached a, an old friend and we opened a, a recording studio in Glasgow and we started writing for other artists and producing other bands. Did that for about 15 years, just really, really enjoyed it. Um, did all kind of things, all, all types of music, country music, indie, you know, heavy rock, whatever you want to call it. We did all, all that stuff. And then uh, a friend introduced me to Derek Forbes from. Um, Simple Minds, and we got on really well. We thought we could maybe put a band together. So we got Mick from Simple Minds, and we got Bruce from Big Country, and then we got uh, a guy called Smiley who played drums with Robbie Williams, and we formed a band called Four Good Men. Excellent. And and then we started touring. We we toured all over America, and we toured Europe. Uh, we made some records, and that happened, that lasted for about four or five years. And that was a great time. That was a brilliant time. Was it was, was it was it kind of um, 
I mean, this is a bit simplistic, but was it a bit like group therapy? Because you've all you all got quite a CV behind you. Was it a case of, God, this is this could be good for all of us? I, I, you know, again, it was hard to hard to really kind of pinpoint why we were doing it, other than it was it was going to be good fun because we did two or three simple uh, we did two or three H two songs, we did some big big country songs, we did the simple minds greatest hits, if you like. So. We're playing to 20, 30, 40,000 people a night, and it was just amazing times. It was it was great fun. Yeah. Um, and that gave me a taste for, for making music again. So yes. that's one. Yeah. And and then you you do you do there's quite a few things. You start writing, you do a novel, don't you? And then you bring out a solo yeah. album as well, which is um I mean, this is this is plucky stuff, isn't it? You did you keep the recording studio studio going at this stage or had that sort of that, no, that, when when four good men took off, um, there was no time to do the studio anymore, so I left that behind. But all that time, I, I was I was writing songs, but I was also writing a novel. And from the moment, from the the dream that I had of the kind of idea for the novel to being on a shelf in, in a bookstore was was twenty years. Um, that's how long it took to to finish the thing. Um, I would because I, I thought to myself, okay. A song's four minutes, keep it snappy, nice intro, no fat, keep everything relevant and make sure you get a great chorus. And I just thought, well, you can just apply that to a book, surely. It's 400, 400 pages, but little, I just totally underestimated it. I get so frustrated about not being able to do what I wanted to do. I had no previous knowledge. So I would I would write it and I would put it away for six months or bring it back out again, try again. And gradually, little by little, then uh, I... It started to make sense, and I'm a big Ray Bradbury fan from from being a kid. Yeah, and to cut to, to cut a very long story short, one of the songs on the H2 album is called uh, Leonard, and it's Leonard Mead is a central character for a short story by Ray Bradbury written in '51 called The Pedestrian, and it's about a time in the future where nobody walks anymore at night, and he's a writer and he does walk. Um, everybody stays in their home, a bit like nowadays in Los Angeles, I suppose. Anyway, um, so I wrote, I wrote a song about that and on the on the H2 album. I was buying a couple of books online and I, I happened to meet Ray Bradbury's uh, editor, a guy called um, Don Albright, and he, he managed Ray Bradbury and edited all his stuff. Again, long story short, I sent him a copy of uh, The Pedestrian, Sorry, uh, Leonard, and he took it to Ray Bradbury, and they let Ray Bradbury hear it. And Ray Bradbury wrote, wrote this letter back to me saying, "I really love the song, and your story is now part of my story." And he sent me a copy of uh, one of his early novels, saying, "Thanks for Leonard, love Ray." And um, I started to send the manuscript to Don, and he can kind of edited it. And again, very long story, but. He kind of guided me a little bit more and uh, eventually I managed to pull the shape of the book into such a way that it actually made sense because I really needed a, a hand. I was writing, writing loads and loads, but wasn't sure what to keep, what not to keep, how to go. So I learned a lot from him um, and that's the kind of story of the book. It's another, it's a bit like standing in the same stage as David Bowie did when he was singing, you know, Sarman. All of a sudden I'm in contact with my, my literary hero, Ray Bradbury. And it's... I've been lucky, you know. I don't. I, that, this is why I've, I've got no axe to grind with what happened or what didn't happen because who cares, you know? I've had a yes. ball and I'm still doing it. 
we're still we're still walking and talking well we're sitting yeah. down but um yes but he started the creative writing course at the uea and um i do remember reading the history man god i'm hoping i'm talking about the oh, same person the illustrated man yeah fabulous story yes it, it was i do i have fond memories of reading that and uh yeah what a legend he is in this area yeah all, all over the world but um yeah, so then when, when this comes out, you bring out your, your first sort of solo, solo album, don't you? Yeah, I did, a, I did a, a solo single after the last H2O record. It was a cover of The Sun and Glory Shining More by the Walker Brothers, who I love. And the guy that produced uh, the last H2O record, a guy called Pete Walsh, he went on to produce all of um, Scott Walker's later albums, all the kind of strange ones. And uh, he took a copy of my version to, to uh, Scott Walker. And Scott Walker wrote me back a note saying, I really dig your version of Sun and Goody Shine anymore. I love Scott. Again, another dream come true. So it's another one of those things where, you know, it's all good. It's all it's good. Good. Because your your voice, especially on the single and this kind on your solo album, is amazing. It's so kind Thank of clear you. and such a perfect, you know, it's just perfect pop, really, isn't it? So you must have enjoyed putting the from Stars We Came together. This must have been, it feels like it had a lot of joy in it, in the pro production and the creation of it. From thank you. From from start to finish, that was about six years of writing songs and recording a little bit when I could afford to and eventually pulling it all together. And that came out about three or four years ago. Um, and, yeah, I'm really proud of it. I mean, I'm really pleased how it turned out. And I do a lot of those songs live with um, some H2O favourites as well. Yes. But, <clears throat> yeah. And who was the band you brought together for that? Or was it done... It's, well, no, it's, it's the band I'm... That I'll use live, or the get the audience they use. They get the guys that play with me live, um, and they're on the the last two or three singles as well. Um, and there's some of them are, are on this present single. So, I like I like to. It's nice to be able to to work with people that you get along with that are also talented. That's that that's the trick. There's loads of talented people out there, but you know they're not my favourite human beings. Maybe I'm not theirs, but so it's trying to get strike that balance um, so that you're not really fed up with anybody or, or want to fall out with anybody in the back of a van when it's been a bad gig or something. So those people are, are hard to find, um, but yeah. I found them. Yeah, found them. People who can read the room, that's the, and got yes. listening skills. <laughs> yes. Just read the room. It's not that difficult. But <laughs> it's like, it certainly is sometimes. But yeah, so then you get the new, you before the, this one, the single that's just come out, All, All I Have Is Forever. Did you, when you yeah. did uh, There Are Days, this came out a couple of yeah. years ago. Was this kind of just a, a sort of a next single from the album? No, that this this will be that that was intended to be the first single of this an album that'll come out next year. Right, um, and that's yeah, and that's when I met Andy Lenahan uh, again, another another guy that's worth his weight in gold. He's a he's a video maker, filmmaker, and uh, we recorded the video for that in a mausoleum just outside Glasgow in a couple of hours, and uh, he's made the, the, all the videos that I've, I've for singles since then. And again, he's another guy easy to get along with, with a big talent. Yeah, so that's to, amazing. Yeah. So then, did you say last year you you got in, well, Alan and you sort of had a bit of communication. This is when the idea came together to do the new al new single, the new album, which is going to be coming out. Well, the single's just come out and the album's coming out later. Yeah, that, that album about next year. The, the, I just, 
I, I just finished work with a guy called Jeff Bernstein. He's a friend from, from Dunfermline. He was in bands that supported Big Country and the Skids when he was the same age as I was in H2O. He's a classical composer now. And he sent me a piece of music and it's like oboes and strings and just all these amazing sounds. So we, I came up with a melody and a vocal and some ideas for a bit of an arrangement. That came out, Alan liked that, but it was the one after that he liked. There's a song called uh, Mirrorball, which was my kind of glam song. Yes. Um, and he really, he really liked that. And that was what kind of switched him on to thinking, yeah, there's something in this. Um, I'm amazed you're still alive. I said, I'm amazed you're still alive as well, Alan. So that was a kind of starting point, you know. He, so he does, he does a lot of walking, of, you know. He does. He doesn't He doesn't take taxis. He doesn't take the bus. He, when he came to Glasgow, he'd walked over half of Glasgow before he got to be. And he's, you know, he's... Really, really fit now. He looks, he looks kind of good in the the tracksuit. Before of it, I wasn't sure about him beforehand, but now he looks like he's he's what he's wearing like a badge. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a bit yeah. To be honest, I, I I sort of go around in my kind of, I suppose, gym running gear quite a lot. So I kind of relate to that new look that us men sometimes have got. But but with with good abs, and I think that's the main thing. We don't look like we're just yeah. sort of got our party pants on and just been to the pub all day we're just you know we're keeping it real you know you know and it's nice you check out people's training shoes in not in a nerdy way actually that is really nerdy Ooh, adidas um yes so there you go so yeah this is this is a magic moment isn't it meeting you know after 40 plus years and the story and the kind of you know the, the way that people's lives intertwine and um and i suppose when you're still you know, on the planet, basically, you know, and sort of walking and talking. Um, yeah, you know, there's something quite nice to think, God, we've done it, haven't we? We've kind of, well, done, there's still more to come, hopefully, but it is also quite a nice feeling of, uh, we've turned out okay, this is good. You know, it was, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a magic moment, to be honest, we just kind of sat, he actually invited me down, first of all, to to be on his, he's got a radio show on Boogaloo Radio. Yes. Um, and, so when I went down there, he was making a friend of his was also making a documentary about him. So he took me aside and, and said, just basically say whatever you want to say. So I just kind of gave it my view, you know, of, of what I thought Alan was in those days. And he found it humorous. And I thought, you've, you've still got your sense of humour. I didn't know what you were going to be like after all this time because, I mean, he was managing the biggest band in the world, you know, and he's, you know, there at Nebworth and he's at the side of the stage and, the reason why it started was because he found them and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's easy for people to forget just, I mean, Motown was really important, but so is creation. Creation is just equally as important as Tamla Motown, I think, to, to rock bands. And it's easy to forget when you're sitting with them, just, you know, what he's achieved. Yes. Um, and, but it's a comfort about it. It's, it's a bit like, you know, when, when, you, when you're in the same company of, as people that have done a few things, you don't really have to talk about the few things that it just allows you to kind of like sit and be comfortable with somebody. You don't have to name drop or you don't have to do any of that kind of stuff. There's nothing to be to be won or gained by by doing that. It's just it's a kind of comfortable. Like, yeah, yeah. So I think we're just looking at each other as survivors to begin with, as as you said. Yes. Um And then the the rest of it just kind of was it just kind of seemed to go naturally. And uh, no, it's good fun. It really is good fun. Oh, that's They're making the records a good fun too. Well, I've spoke to quite a lot of artists, and I think the one thing they like and the one thing that isn't quite there is often just they want to make the music, 
you know, and now making music, you know, it's difficult, you've got to have the idea, but you know, we, the equipment is there. But being part of a label is just a lot more fun than just doing it yourself and then putting it on Bandcamp and then just seeing it slightly disappear and drown in the deep end of a swimming pool, really. So it's it's quite nice to have something, just some, you know, a deadline, someone to phone, someone to, e you know, to email to see how it's coming along, someone just to sort of, so you can kind of feel like the admin side is getting taken care of and there's somebody who's wanting it to be done. Um, and you can focus on that rather than thinking, well, one day I'll just put it on my little band camp and it will just get diluted like a homeopathic remedy. Um, so it's good. But I also, you know, it's kind of interesting about Alan because for me, it's about a lot about the 80s, you know, the way it kind of started in, you know, in London with the, the living room with his kind of little indie gig. And and those kind of, all those bands that he signed during the eighties, I find is just such a fascinating story. And it's like that Malcolm Gladwell, you know, is it hundred thousand hours, ten thousand hours you do to create something? And it's almost like you, you know, the eighties was all about, you know, the the label, the, the the little indie nights, all these little bands who were brilliant but weren't ever going to sort of pay your pension. And then one day, you know, you get this moment in the sort of early to mid the mid nineties, and I think that that perseverance is quite extraordinary i think that's really what it's all about you can i mean wanting is never enough it's it is a great start but it's not enough you have to actually do more than that and people some people talk i'm in a band and we're writing songs when and we're doing things and it's almost like that first wave of enthusiasm seems to be enough for them and it never actually goes any further than that and it's always been about songs. It's, uh, uh, you know, songs, they're, they're gods with a small G, I believe. I mean, no matter who it is that you love, it's always the songs. And it's, I'm not trying to create, I'm not trying to, to write songs as good as Deacon Blue or Wet 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 or anything. I'm trying to write songs as good as David Bowie and Roxy Music. That's what I am for. And if I fall short, that's okay, that's great. But you really have to kind of think, could I write something as good as on Aladdin Sane? Could I write something as good as on Parallel Lines? You've really got to kind of aim and at the same time not be self-conscious about it because this this song that this out now, All I Have Is Forever, the music was an instrumental that, that Craig sent me from Berlin and I came up with a melody and a vocal and, um, and added some guitars and a little bit more keys. But it's not it's not a conscious thing to write for a market because I really wouldn't know how to write for a market. The only thing I can think of is, and I always admire this about David Bowie, he always wrote about wherever he was in his life. So, you know, he was no longer a Moon Age daydream or five years. You know, he was black tie. He was, you know, uh, um, what's, what's most recently, like uh, Thursday's Child, whatever it happens to be. And I've always thought that you know, if, if I can just write about me just now, so which sounds incredibly selfish, but I only write songs for me, and I'm just hoping that maybe somebody else will like that. And the the, the it's a it's a risk, but I would really rather stay at home and read or watch a movie than go and do something I don't want to do, especially now. Yes. And the music the music we're making at the moment is is really what I want to do. And Alan's Alan, although he's hands-on, he says, you know, what have you and Craig come up with? And we played it to him. He said, I love this. Let's just go with it. It's really, it's like a Tony Wilson kind of idea. You know, it's like, you know, yeah, well, what is it you want to do? Well, I'll, I'll support you because I really believe in that. And it's, it's, to have, it's a, he's a one-man army behind us, you know, like he can open any door, he can do anything, you know, and it's just, you just have to give him the right, the right song. And that was the, 
And that's the criteria. It's the only criteria is that give him a song that he can believe in. And that's how the future is going to be. Yes. And, and, you know, on that Bowie front, you know, I'd sort of, like I mentioned, he was with me, you know, all through, you know, my life. And, and obviously, you know, that Black, uh, Black Star and Lazarus album, you know, was quite something, you know, and obviously he was writing, I think, so much about he, what he was going through at that period, which was to do with, you know, his health, his, his scans, his blood tests, his operations, probably, you know, and, and sort of, you know, he couldn't write about going out and, you know, burning rubber down the motorway you know he was you know reading you know writing about a black star and you know it was amazing you know it was kind of I think it was slightly yeah. referenced to an Elvis Presley song about you know when your black star it comes, was. you know your yeah. calling is, is yeah. here. so I've read that, into that. <laughs> so I don't know if that's true but well, you know it, it was quite it was interesting it was a kleptomaniac I mean there's no doubt about that but he always added something of himself to whatever he stole or borrowed um, yes. So you're right about Blackstar, but you know Elvis couldn't have written what you couldn't have added what David Bowie added, and I think the you know to to, have, to to be the first song on your album after you die, look up here I'm in heaven. I mean that's, that's amazing. That's that amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, just too, yeah, it's too too sad to believe. Really. That's spooky. So yeah, yeah, crikey. But did um, does that mean that for for now, you know, you've got the single out, which is amazing. Do you know? Are you now working on the album, and is this mostly with Craig, by the way, or is it going to be with different writers? No, but it'll be either I've written some original things um, and recorded them up until now. That half the album will be with Craig and half the album will be with with uh, with my own songs. But if at any point as it nears completion, it tips one way or the other, we'll just pick the best ten songs. So yes. that that's what it'll be. It'll be that's the the criteria will be what are the best ten songs, and I'll go with that absolutely. Yeah, it's quite exciting now because um, I've realised that I, I'm sure it is Craig who had done all that solo stuff, and I think he, the band did an album quite recently, but they still were in different parts of the world yes. having to sort of bring their stuff together and giving it to some poor produce, producer, engineer to say, yeah, could you just make it sound like we're all in the same room? And and, I, and apparently he did. So that's that's just amazing. So yes, the world on one level has, has become quite intriguing in that sense of being able to share files and, and to record in your own space and keep it going. So um, yeah, amazing. Yeah. There, there is an upside to every downside. You know, sometimes it can be hard to see. Um, and for a lot of people, it's only a downside that won't with COVID and what it's done to people's families and their livelihoods and everything. But um, I'm I'm always kind of at my best when I'm under pressure, if you like, when, when something is happening in life. You know, some people reach for a bottle or reach for a syringe. I always reach for music. And that's been my lifeline all, you know, for, for all of my life, basically. That's been my go-to place all the time. So I can I can put on a Dave Bowie album in the morning feeling really unwell. And then by the time it's finished, you know, I've got a new lease in life. You know, it's 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 the best medicine in the world. And I think that you are obviously a big David Bowie fan as well. And there is a song for every feeling and there's a song for every occasion. There's a song for every moment in your life. And... Uh, There'll never be anyone like him again. I don't think. I think. I don't. Because rock and roll was fairly new when he started as well. Now it's it's hard to find something that hasn't been done, or or maybe just give it a different taint or a different flavour. But it's it's hard to be completely original. 
Yes. And when you look, but yeah, when you look back in fifty years of his music, he's basically covered just about everything. Yeah, it was boggling, you know, because I, I love the fact that during the sixties, most of that work was a bit odd, and you know, you're thinking, I can't believe he was. Re- recorded and releasing it while there was like you know all this other music from Jimi Hendrix and Jethro yeah not Jethro Tull well perhaps Jethro Tull but um Jefferson yeah. playing the Doors the Beatles the Stones the Kinks you know and David came along with these weird little quirky little folky numbers and then suddenly you know the 70s and he's got the Angie Bowie the Tony DeFries he's got Mick Ronson and slowly you know suddenly in one moment it almost starts to change and it, you know like in the 70s he did one album a year you know, produced a few other people's like, you know, Transformer, Lust for Life with Iggy Pop, you know, relocated in several different locations, was on several different films, and what, as well as toured huge amount of gigs. And, and you know, thinking, my God, how did you do it? And, and as well as having a divorce with his aunt, his wife, having a child. So it does, you know, it's quite amazing that, you know, from that context, then his 80s, 90s, and then right up to his passing, you know, it was just... You know, he was an extraordinary character, which kind of is, you know, is inspiring because at the same time, you know, he kept, you know, he kept true to what he was trying to do. Apart from the late 80s, I must admit, two of those albums aren't great. But I do think Tim Machine is fine. He admits, um, he, he admits that too. I mean, he, he did say that he got a, a terrible fright when Let's Stance became such a big hit. And he said he did fall into the trap of trying to write for a market for the next two albums and... But that's why Tim Machine happened. I, I could see that immediately. What he wanted to do was he wanted to kind of like think things through, but he had to do it within the context of something else. So I think he he always intended for himself to be a, bit, a little bit of a passenger and let leaves, you know, gives, uh, let the band come forward. Because I went to see them at the, at the Barrowland in, in Glasgow and he did kind of hang about the back of the stage and let the other musicians take front, front uh, centre stage. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that he was just, I think it was, it was some sort of therapy for him. I think by the time Tin Machine had come to an end, I don't think he ever had any intentions of it really lasting any longer than that. And by that time, he'd cleared everything out, you know, and decided, I'm not going to do that again. Um, very clever. But, you know, portable skills, that's what you had always, you know, you, you could put them among other musicians and he could find a way and that's what makes him really unique you know yeah. I, I love Brian Ferry but but Brian Ferry is not just quite the, the kind of sparkling ta- talent that, that David Bowie was um, a, a guy that's really underrated and I think he should be up there with them as Ian Hunter from oh, right. Lord of Hoople yes. I think he's really underrated I've been to see him a few times and you know it's just Again, but quite a quiet character, you know, whereas Bowie was quite gregarious and, you know, just out there. Uh, exciting times. I'm getting really, think about all the wonderful things I used to think, you know, and the songs, that, you know, when I heard Love and the Alien for the first time or or you heard Cooks for the first time and just, these are all magic moments. I mean, they're really, really important. Yes, but, but, well, it's interesting, Love and the Alien, because when he did the tour, the reality tour on with Heathen's reality, they redo Love and the Alien, and, and it's a version from that live recording, which he says, you know, they're a bit more happy with what it sounds like than it did on the album, which was probably Tonight, which I can't quite remember. I think it was yes. Tonight. Um, and yeah. it does, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, that does sound... It's a, a lot of it is to do with the production, really. It's kind of... It's an 80s production, isn't it, for those two albums after Let's Dance, which slightly makes it quite hard work in a way. 
I, I think he was a wee bit unkind to the, the recording of Love and Alien. I, I, I thought it really worked. But then, I mean, the one question I would like to have asked David Bowie, I never met him, but and it would be, wouldn't be the obvious one, it would be like, it would be, do you have really, do you really have any idea how important you are to people who listen to your music? Because I think that he was so set on being a future thing that, you know, every time he made an album, he was already thinking about the next thing. And I don't think he really, you know, I know Ziggy frightened him, but, you know, I don't think he ever really sat down and I don't get the impression he sat down and thought, really, what have I done here? What, what's happened? I think he was always thinking about the, the, the next thing. And when you hear him talking about the songs, they're, they're not quite commodities to him, but they're a little bit... There's something they're not as precious to him as they are to us. Um, and I always thought it was a little bit strange, but having read loads about him after his death, then you know, maybe maybe we got him wrong in a way. You know, maybe we got him wrong in a way. Maybe he was he wasn't quite what we, we thought he was, and he'd probably laugh at that if he had us all talking like that, but um, I thought I, to me it was like he was an alchemist, and he probably laugh at that. But I think there is an alchemy about what happened with, with, the, with the people he worked with, and I don't know if he really recognised that for really what it was. As I said, because he's on to the next thing. Um, maybe in his when he realised he was passing on, maybe he, he, he thought a little bit more about it. But um, I'd like to ask him. Oh, yes, that would have been amazing, wouldn't it? It would just be amazing. Actually, to be in it, to be honest, I'm, because I'm a possessed with Bowie, I've been um, sort of trying to interview as many people who had ever known him or worked with him. And it is kind okay. of, it's been, it has been really fascinating, actually, because, you know, it's like, because I just want to kind of like, what was he like? You know, how did he, you know, and, and, and it is quite extraordinary. You know, it's kind of the, all those stories from, you know, like Woody, Woodmancy and, you know, I mean that 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 in itself is an amazing story. That the night that um, they that Holy Holy was playing in New York, it was like David Bowie's birthday, and you know Tony Visconti gets his phone and he rings and says, "Hi, David." You know they just made Black Star, so they wish him a happy birthday, and they all go, "Hey, well, happy birthday!" And there was this rumor that David was going to appear that night on Holy Holy, as they were doing some album from that period. And then Woody like said the next day, his phone was like, "What's going on?" And it was like. David's died. He was like, but we were singing him happy birthday the night before. Yeah. It was like all these kind of weird connections. But then, you know, George Underwood, I've done an interview with him, who was the boy who sort of hit him in the eye and, and you know, paralyzed his eye. And then, you know, people like Ava Cherry and Dana Gillespie and even Angie Bowie. And, you know, I, I have sort of, you know, and, and various guitarists like Earl Slick and, and Garson and Jerry Lennon as well. So, it's been it's been kind of one of those kind of projects. I think, oh my God, you know, you were you knew David Bowie. I must go and have an interview with you. And it's been interesting because one of the people who I did recently was um, he was a Scottish guy who was in a band called One Two Three or Clouds, and they were a '60s band from Scotland, um, but they were the first ever prog rock band. And David just hung out with them all the time in this kind of like, I just want to hang out with you. And then they have a big falling out, you know. And this this character I can't remember his name gets his keyboard, smashes it 
says, fuck it, I'm not doing music anymore, ne and never plays music again. And then like 20, 30 years ago, later, you know, he gets on with the rest of his life. And David starts mentioning, saying, you know, this guy's a genius, this band had a huge influence. And he really, and David really makes an effort to meet him and, and invite him back into his life again. And, you know, he was a bit like, I don't know why, but, you know, it was, it was just kind of an interesting little story. And I just find that quite fascinating, you know. I think that's a beautiful thing. I really do. Um, I think I think that you hear more and more stories about what he did for people personally, but you never really, you know, it was never really made public. Like I didn't know he'd been offered a knighthood, um, and he says I wouldn't know what to do with that. That's not what I do. What I do. Yes. I thought that was an incredibly honest answer. Whereas everybody's like, yeah, yeah, please, I'll have it. I'll have it. And I just thought a whole lot of integrity doesn't not for me. I don't need that. Moving on to the next thing. Not many people would do that. I don't want to deify him here, but that's not what I'm, I'm intended to do. But I'm, I'm just what I mean is that it's it was more than the man. It was it was so much about him. It was about his integrity, about his skills, about his people skills, about his tenacity. It's about I just don't really see that in many other people. To be honest, I just it's it is unique and it's and that it's it's a testament to, for us to be still talking about him and for you still still to try and find out from other people who spoke to him and what, what else can you glean from them? What else did you not know already? What was their take on him? I think that's, you know, and uh, the number of times he's been mentioned in, uh, in science fiction movies. Yes. You know, are, you, are you a Blade Runner fan? I have. Do you remember? I it, yes, I do. Remember, the trouble is, I've watched it back in that period, but I haven't seen it again actually. So um, well, it's all a bit of a blur. It's up there with Betty Blue and Diva, really. It, it really is. But the, the Roy, the the Rutger Hauer character, who releases a dove at the end, and he's a Nexus Seven, and basically he's coming back to find out why his life is. He was given a limited lifespan by the Terrell Corporation, and. His uh, birth certificate is the 8th of January, which is David Bowie's birthday. Right. Right, okay. And, and the building that the, the watchmaker, the robot maker, is the Bradbury building. And it's all those kind of wonderful things that all kind of like piece together. Yeah. So there's, there's going to be a track on the album. It's called Rachel Tyrell. And Rachel Tyrell was the was the Nexus 7 that Tyrell created. She was the beautiful-looking Sean Young woman, do you remember, with the kind of 40s dress and everything? Yes. Um, she, she doesn't know it yet, but she's she's uh, immortal. But she doesn't know that yet. She's she's the only one that he made. And Deckard, Harrison Ford's character, falls for her. So this, uh, this song, rather than doing a boy beats girl, boy loses girl kind of idea, the love song, the love song for for the album will be Rachel Tyrell, and it's about Deckard and her their their story. And I just thought that was kind of like more more like David Bowie might do nowadays, you know, like just not have it as I don't want any of the songs to be ordinary. So we're, I'm working on an arrangement like that at the moment with uh, the keyboards player. I'm working with a guy called Rohan, and that's shaping up to be quite a kind of space epic, you know. So it's I'm getting excited again because I, I just love songs, but you've just reminded me. So, um, <laughs> you know, yeah, this is good. This is good. Yeah, well, no, this is you've got to keep you've got to keep the, the 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 flow of this, don't you? I mean, if there was anything you could have just said to a a sixteen year old self starting out, is there anything you know with all the 
decades and wisdom and experiences. Is there anything that you would have just kind of would love to have just whispered to them to say, oh, by the way, yes, keep doing that, or oh, think about doing something, you know, just have this I would up. say to them, I would say to them, don't run down the stairs with your hands in your pockets. Yes, wise, wise word. Because, because when you're 16, you're 18, I remember it was like that. People like 24 were old bastards. 30, what the fuck? Are you still alive at 30? You don't You don't need any of that. You really have to make some mistakes of your own. Um, and just follow your heart. You know, if you're in a rock and roll band or you're in a reggae band or whatever kind of band you're in, just do it to the best of your ability. Just but break your heart, if necessary, to write the best songs you possibly can. And never assume that that when you go into a recording studio, and um, you can let the, you can let the song go, and somebody else will make your day for you. You need to keep a hold of the song and make sure it's moulded in your own image. You have to do that because a lot of young bands, you know, they'll ha- they'll they'll have a demo and it'll sound great, and then they'll get Rupert in to produce it, who doesn't understand what's going on, but it's being paid a lot of money, so he just changes it and and adds odd components that no longer work, and everybody's unhappy. You've got to be really, really careful about that because I remember when we signed to RCA, the, one of the reasons why we signed to RCA was because Roxy Music had broken up. Brian Ferry was doing his own thing. And RCA thought there's a there's a, a, a niche for a band that's not kind of unlike Roxy Music-ish. And they thought that Dream to Sleep was a little bit along those lines. And we, we didn't realise that that's what they were looking for from us. So when we started to do other things, this, I was telling you earlier on about the MC that came from from abroad, uh, from Europe. He yeah. just didn't like what we were doing. So, so he, he wanted us to be a certain thing and we wanted to kind of like expand. So it's... The thing about nowadays about the internet, you might not make any money from it, but you can get to express yourself exactly how you like every time if you really want. But the chances are you'll never make any money at it. So really it depends... It's, it, it's always about your intentions. Why are you in music in the first place? Is it to get the girls? Okay, you can do that. You know, is it to get the boys? You can do that. Is it just to kind of say you're in a band? Is it to rehearse every Sunday night with the lads and you take six cans of lager in and you all get howling mad with it while you're playing the drums? You know, it can be anything you want, but if it's if you're only in it for the money, then it's a bad career move because yes. it, I, I still believe it is a calling. I know that sounds really, you know, but to be a musician like Neil Young or David Bowie or Queen or any of those, it's a call and it's not just a business. Um, and you really have to decide why you want to make music in the first place. And a yeah. lot of people don't because you just want to be famous, you know, and they're disappointed. You're disappointed because maybe the, your starting point was the wrong one, you know? But it's interesting because obviously most of these, you know, interviews I do are from bands from the 80s though other decades as well but actually everybody has you know they've done that moment and then other things and da 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 but they've always you know I would say virtually everybody still wants to make music decades later you know it's still kind of the thing you know they might have had to get a day job they might have had to do this and that you know they've you know life has you know got you know had some interesting moments but mostly they're like I still really want to make another record and it you know it doesn't matter it's not going to be you know on I don't know I have no idea anymore (laughs) but there used to be the NME melody maker sounds didn't there that's all gone who knows what it is now but you know now it's all about you know just like I just want to make a record I just want to have that creative process and um 
And it's great. I just think it's, it's just, you know, quite genuine. I can see why there were so many good bands in the 80s, because actually most of those musicians, singers, are still wanting to do it decades later. There's not many who just went, I just kind of did it because, you know, it was just this little thing that wasn't that important. It was like, no, it was really important to us, and we really did it. Yeah. And, it, you know, there was a few things we kind of should have done which we didn't but we were 24 so that's life <laughs> it's like <laughs> you know yeah, and, and, and we were yeah and we were all we were all kind of sons of glam at that time as well and through punk and bowie and roxy music and there's all those wonderful songs there you know like drowning in berlin is vic there a million other songs all completely different from each other you know there isn't the same kind of palette nowadays for, for musicians. A lot of musicians, a lot of the indie bands sound quite like each other. You know, they've got the big chant and they've got a certain drum beat. Um, and a lot of the kind of R&B singers, it's kind of the same kind of, sounds like the same few guys that are making those records, the similar sounds and everything. And it takes, I mean, like, you know, St. Vincent or, or um, I really like, DC Fontaine, but but they all kind of are something else as well. Yeah. But it's and you know in the eighties it was completely different. You didn't know what you were going to get, and and a lot of things charted, and you know, I think that that's why that's why so many of those people wanted to do, do it again. It's because it really did mean they were in it for all the right for me for all the right reasons. They wanted to make great records because there's an old song that says uh, rock and roll. I gave you the best years of my life. And it's absolutely true. Um, there, there's, I think there's two or three different chains of thought now. A, a lot of people that made records in the 80s don't have, they didn't have pensions, you know. They did, there wasn't a career like that. So it's a bit like, well, I don't mind doing butlets and doing this, the, set, the set over and over again if I can make a living at that. And there are other people like, um, like the Tears for Fears album is really good. And you can see they really want to kind of push the envelope again yes. and do something a little bit different. So there's, there's, it's not everybody that's in it because some people are in it because they have to, because there isn't really an option. It is a bit like I need to put food on the table and this is a way of doing it. Um, and there are people that have made a little bit of money and, and can they can experiment a little bit and make enough from streaming or maybe doing live, live gigs to maybe keep it going again. So people are doing it for different reasons at this age, I think. And some yeah. of people are just doing it for the last hurrah. Yes, That's I, good, absolutely. Good I mean, enough as well. I know. Look at Phil Collins. He's getting, you know, I think he has to be wheeled on and sat there and yeah. has to do. He can't even play the drums, but he can't, apparently can't even walk. But I still think that's quite amazing. They're sort of like, we've still got another world tour later on in the year, Phil. It's like, yeah. me. they're really pushing the man, isn't they? But I have to say, you because you mentioned Parallel Lines and great songs. I still think 1159 yeah. is one of the classics of our time. Brilliant. <laughs> it's just one of, you know, Brilliant. lyrically and musically, I still... I always kind of have to put that on. You think, what a song, 11, 11.59, I want to stay alive. It's a good one, isn't it? And the thing is, they, they still want to do it. I mean, she still wants to do it. Um, and they're, they're co-writing with other people to get the best songs they possibly can. I mean, Pollinator's a great album. That's as good as anything they did before, I think. Um, in fact, the plane, um, the plane in, in Glasgow, um, and it's Blondie supported by, or special guest is Johnny Marr. I mean, that's just a marriage made in heaven. Oh, that's and interesting. I've got a, 
Yeah, but I've got a gig that night because their gig has been pushed about so much. It landed on one of my gigs, so I'm, I'm, I, I can't, I can no longer go. But so I'll be doing a gig somewhere else on my own. But I would really like to have seen them together because I saw yes. Blondie the last time they were here. Well, she was amazing. And the amazing thing is, uh, Glenn, Clem, Clem is um, he's always guesting on everybody's um, album if if they're in in New York. He's like, oh yes, we've got Clem from Blondie, and I guess he must think, oh yes, I'm free on Tuesday afternoon. I'll come and do yeah. your drum bit. You know, not going to be. What's the chords? What's the chords? Yeah, here we go. <laughs> so would, he's would quite. Were you ever a musician, Dave? No, I, I was never no. a musician. No, it's such a shame. Never mind. Did you ever try anything? Did you not like try a guitar at school or keyboards or anything? No? No, we we were remarkably... It wasn't... No, we didn't have that kind of... No, it just wasn't that environment and no. uh, that world, no. un unfortunately. And, yeah, I sort of look at, you know, everyone else I was at school with and it was like, no, none of us were in bands, weren't we? We, we played a lot of football and messed about a lot, but there wasn't that... Uh, you know, I I don't want to blame my childhood, but you know, I don't know if it's a little bit about being in a village in a countryside with not much else on. I'm, you know, that's not a good enough excuse. But there wasn't that, yeah, you know, there wasn't that kind of element of the streets and a city or town that, um, yeah, just had different influences that can have quite an impact when you're younger. So, um, yeah, yeah, but it's yes. fine. It's fine. I've always well, you're, loved no, but you really. But you are really knowledgeable and you sound, you've got a kind of, you've got a bit of an insider's view of what music is about and a lot of people don't have that. So you have, I mean, you know, obviously you are listening to what people are telling you, but you've got your own point of view in there as well. And I, I, this is a little bit clumsy how I'm, I'm, how I'm trying to compliment you, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you do have, but it's a different kind of conversation I'm, we're having than, than I have with other other DJs who are, are just they play records and they go to the gigs and there's not there's not a great of depth about what it means to be in a band or to have been in a band or why you're still in a band. But you seem to have kind of got a handle on that. So that's what made me ask you if you'd been in a band before because it's more rounded, you know, and there's well, no I... disrespect to anybody else. No, 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 absolutely not. Because that's, the, you know, because I did mention earlier, and it's not in a sort of an unpleasant way, but because I, I just think, you know, if anybody's done anything, it's wonderful. You know, in the Kajagugu thing, there was nothing disparaging about it because it's like, well, God, you know, they've, they've done it. I didn't even get that far, so it's good. And I, you know, and I... Yes, it will. Always, I did an uh, interview with a member of the Farmers Boys who said, yes, we were signed on the same day. So they had a group picture of the Farmers Boys from East Anglia in the countryside looking very like, you could imagine people from the countryside next to Kajagugu who looked quite, <laughs> quite beautiful. He said it was a bit of a strange photo op, but, uh, you know, we smiled about it. And, you know, I still have those moments, especially, I know, Spotify, where you listen to Too Shy and then you listen to Do You Want to Be In My Gang by Gary Glitter and you think... There you go. It's a great band. <laughs> Listen, they're, they're great records. I know he's he severely blotted his copybook and he deserves to be in jail. You know, let's not. But he made some great records. And so did the Glitter Band. They did. Fabulous records. They, and they're nice guys. So, uh, yes, there you go. Yeah. They're still doing it. But look, thank you ever so much for this. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I know after it, we just keep babbling more. Anyway, a massive thank you, as always, to Ian Donaldson for giving me the time for that interview. And uh, yes, do check out H2O, I Dream to Sleep, classic 1984 music. And that was from the album Faith. Yes, indeed. And also new material coming out, All I Have is Forever, 
Stunning vocals, stunning production. Do look, do check it out. It will change your life. Anyway, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. All these have been archived, lucky you, on um, Spotify, I know, Podbean and also iTunes. Check it out. C86 Show, it's all there. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>